for the past several weeks. I hope you've been helped in thinking about decisions that we make and how we can make decisions that glorify God. God's Word tells us we should use wisdom in order to make decisions that please Him. We talked about God's sovereign will, His will that will be accomplished no matter what. We've talked about His moral will, what He commands us to do, what He instructs us to do. Now, I'd like to take the next couple of weeks to apply this to our church, God's will for our church this week. And then next week, what is God's will for your church involvement or for, or for the Christian's church involvement? And I think this occasion of the new year is the perfect time to talk about something like this. The new year is good for looking back over the past year to see how you've lived, looking back and examining the things that were important to you, the things that were important to your life. It's good to ask questions like this. What is driving us? Why do we exist? Have we forgotten our purpose, our mission? You know, as we think about New Year's resolutions, I don't know if some of you are making New Year's resolutions to get fit or to eat healthier or to save money or, or what, but this last line of the, the song we sung should make us think deeply about our lives. The earth will soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. The end. The Lord is, is coming one day, and even if He doesn't come in our lifetime, our end will be soon enough, won't it? Think about the things that we are passionate about. Things that, uh, I'm passionate about Carolina basketball. I love that. Some people are passionate about food. Nothing gets them more excited than good food. I like that too. We're passionate about work. We're passionate about our fun. We're passionate about many things, but are we passionate about growing in godliness? About the things that will not only be helpful to us and beneficial in this lifetime, but in the lifetime to come? Do we care about those things? This is a good time to think about that. To think about what priorities we have put in our life over the past year and what priorities we will put in our life this year. Thinking about our church. What is God's will for His church? And are we fulfilling that will? This morning, this, morning, this is what I want us to consider. What is God's will for His church? What is God's will for us? as His church here in Gibsonville. First, we have to say that it's God's will for His church that we would glorify Him. That we would bring glory and honor to God. The Scripture itself is clear that this is the reason everything in all creation was made. So that it would bring glory to God. That's why we're encouraged in 1 Corinthians 10.31 No matter what you do, do it for the glory of God. The second question in the Baptist Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? That means, what is the main purpose of man? And the answer goes like this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Is that your chief end? To glorify God. To enjoy Him forever. Man's highest purpose is to bring glory to God. When a woodworker builds a beautiful chair, its excellence and beauty, its workmanship, 
reflects back to the maker, not just to the chair. The chair wasn't created for its own glory. It was made so that the creativity, the, the, the goodness, the skill of its maker would be recognized. In the same way, all of creation doesn't exist just for itself. And we weren't made just for our own enjoyment, for our own pleasure. Rather, we were made to point back to the creativity, the glory, the power, the goodness of our great God. That's what it means to glorify God. That our lives, that everything about us would be one big finger pointing back to God, saying He is great. He is wonderful. It stands to reason that since the church is the people of God, we as a community of believers exist for this purpose too. To glorify God. We, the church, exist to glorify God. Now this probably sounds obvious to you, right? That's obvious. We exist to glorify God. But it's important that we give a lot of thought to it. What we think our purpose is directly affects what we will do and why we do it. What we think our purpose is directly affects what we do and why we do it. If we think our chief purpose, the chief purpose of the church is to care for the needs of the poor, the physical needs of the poor, then that will drastically change everything we do. If that is the primary and chief end of the church, why would we need to have Bible studies? Why would we need to have singing or meet together like this on Sunday mornings to worship God? Instead, we would be better off if we changed all our meeting times to community outreaches. If we think that the chief purpose of the church is to get bigger, to just fill the seats, then that too will radically change what we do and why we do it. If that's the case, we wouldn't want to say anything that would offend anyone. We definitely wouldn't, in our PC culture, want to say the name Jesus very much or say that He died a bloody death on the cross to save sinners. And we would make sure our services were very entertaining and that our pastor told a lot more jokes. Right? If we wanted to grow big, if that was our chief end. But if our chief purpose as a church is to glorify God, we better think carefully about what it means to glorify Him and how we can do that. What does it mean to glorify God in our worship services? What does it mean to glorify Him in our Bible studies, in our Sunday school classes? What does it mean to glorify Him in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our world? And notice this touches not only what we do, but what we're thinking while we do it and why we do what we do. It touches on our thoughts and our motives for the things that we do. This applies to us in many ways. Individually, it applies to us. But for a moment, think about how it applies to us as a church. For instance, what does it mean that we want to glorify God in our music? Just taking one little piece of of our church and one little piece of our worship service. What does it mean to glorify God in our music? And first, I think it means that the content of our songs will be glorifying to God. The content of our songs will honor Him. The content will point to Him and to His greatness. It will be true. It will be biblical. When we're singing in our worship to God, we should notice something. Are we talking more about ourselves or more about God? Are we talking more frequently about how we feel about God or about how great 
How majestic, how beautiful, how powerful He is. Are we mainly talking about our feelings or about God's amazing grace? And I, I think that God-glorifying music will be talking much more about God, His character, His attributes than about us. And see, what caused and has, what has caused and causes a lot of the worship wars is that we have thought too much of ourselves. We have thought too much about what pleases us. We have thought too much about what we like, what sounds good to us, when in fact we should be thinking very differently. We should be thinking, what pleases God? What would He like for my singing to be like? What is pleasing to His ears, to His heart? If we want to glorify God in our music, We'll think carefully about the content of our songs and we'll also think carefully about how we are singing. Does the way we sing make others think we're happy to be singing? Does the way we, we worship God make others think that we are happy to be worshiping Him? That He's even worthy of worship at all? Does it make others want to join in and worship our great God? The content of our songs and the way in which we sing will either bring glory to God or it will detract glory from Him. I hope you see how this applies not just to our music, but to every single part of the life of our church. It applies to what we do and why we do it. This morning, as we think about God's will for His church, I want to point out two ways in which we can go about fulfilling this purpose, this chief end of glorifying God. Two ways in which we obey what He has told us and we reflect back His character, His, His excellence, His power, His wisdom, His love. And the first is this. We glorify God as a church by making disciples. We could say it like this. It is God's will for His church that we would make disciples. Turn in your Bible to the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the charge that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. It endures and applies to us as the church. We don't have an, an official mission statement at our church, but I don't see why this can't serve as the mission statement for every church. This is our mission, to make disciples and so give glory to God. Notice the mission includes not only bringing people into faith in the Lord Jesus, but also teaching them and helping them to grow as disciples. This mission includes both what we call evangelism and discipleship. It includes uh, conversion, someone 
becoming a Christian, someone becoming a follower of Christ, and it, it includes someone growing in their knowledge of who God is, growing in their uh, desire and ability to follow Jesus. This is our mission. But have you ever wondered what would happen if we forgot our mission? What if we forgot our mission? I'm so thankful for Christian missionaries. They've given their life for the sake of Christ and His church. They've made huge sacrifices. You know the Most family that we're supporting. Uh, they're they're uh, going to be headed to France and then Cameroon pretty soon. They're sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. They've sacrificed the enjoyments and comforts of America. They have sacrificed seeing their family and friends on a regular basis. They have sacrificed, their, their, their parents have sacrificed being able to see their grandchildren on a regular basis for years on end. giving up so much of what we treasure and enjoy, all for the sake, in the most case, of translating the Bible into languages people can understand. But imagine if there was a missionary family who had forgotten their mission. They made the initial sacrifices and went to a foreign country, but then, after a while of hard going, what seemed to be little fruitfulness, they started becoming more and more comfortable in this new land. They ended up spending most of their time at different jobs, at their work, or with friends. They never really talked about the mission anymore. They never did much to push forward the mission anymore. They would no longer be called missionaries, would they? Because they had lost their mission. They had forgotten their mission. They, they would have forgotten why they went to a foreign land in the first place. There isn't much worse than when a missionary forgets his mission. But it must be just as bad when a church loses and forgets why it exists. When a church forgets what it's supposed to be doing. Brothers and sisters, we have to consider this for ourselves. Have we forgotten the mission? Do we remember what it is? Have we forgotten why we were formed a hundred years ago and why we exist? Think about our church. Are we working to fulfill our mission of making disciples? Is everything we, we do geared towards bringing in new believers and discipling the believers that are here? Growing disciples. Making disciples and growing disciples. And notice that you're a part of this mission as well. You see what Jesus said we are to do after we make disciples? How we are to teach them? Teaching them everything I have commanded you. Have you learned to obey everything Christ has commanded you? Have you reached perfection as a, a Christian saint? And you're still on your journey of Christian maturity and sanctification. We have to think about this. What better time to think about it than the new year? Are we fulfilling our mission? Are we bringing in new Christians? Are we making disciples? Are we helping our church members to grow? to learn to obey Christ more? Do our programs reflect this mission? And if the answer to those questions is no, then we, we should reconsider what we're doing and why we're doing it. But notice one more thing about the Great Commission, though, before we go on to our next point. God has given us certain means to carry out this mission. 
Sometimes we might say that the message, the, the methods change, but the message stays the same. But I think it's the case that the primary methods stay the same, along with the message. Let me ask you this. How are people saved? How do people come to faith in Jesus? By what method do they come to know the truth of the gospel? Isn't it someone speaking the gospel message to them? Romans 10, 13-15 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard of? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How will anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. This is the God-ordained, the God-given means for making disciples. People come to faith in Jesus when they hear the message of Jesus Christ and they believe in that message. The primary method we have for fulfilling our mission is preaching the Word. Preaching the Gospel. The good news of salvation. This is how people will come to be saved. So when they're here in church and they hear the good news of a Savior who died for sinners, they're hearing the message. And when you, by extension, when you scatter out into the world, into your workplace, into your school, into your community, you are proclaiming the message. You're striving to make disciples. Consider then, are we working hard to bring others to discipleship? Are we working hard to bring others to church? And I don't mean those who already go to a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. I mean those who are unchurched. or those who go to a church which doesn't preach the Word. Friends, this is the way, the primary way that God fulfills His mission through us as the church. He uses the Word preached to bring sinners to faith. And He uses the preached Word week in and week out to grow us, to teach disciples to obey everything that Jesus commanded. This is a long-term project, making disciples. You have to be in it for the long haul. Let's not forget our purpose. To glorify God in all that we do. And let's not forget our mission to make disciples. Because anything else we do is just flop. To make disciples all the way from conversion to Christian maturity. And finally, let's not forget our character. This is the second way in which we glorify God. God's will is for His church to be pure. God's will is for His church to be pure. Pure means something that is not mixed or adulterated with any other substance or material. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We read in 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul's desire was that the Corinthian church would be presented to Christ as pure. And in, it's the same in Philippians 1, 9-10. Paul says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best, that you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Every time we see the word saint in the New Testament, it refers to 
Someone who is set apart. Christians, we are saints in this sense. We are set apart from the world for a special purpose to glorify God. God's will is that His church be separate and pure from the world. If you've ever traveled to a third world country or overseas somewhere, you know it's not safe to drink the water. I went to Africa in 1998. They gave us all kinds of instructions about the water and how we should use it and how we should not use it. We certainly weren't supposed to just drink it, guzzle down a a cup of it without filtering it or uh, treating it in some way. We weren't even supposed to brush our teeth with it. Um, We weren't supposed to wash our food with it. We had to use bottled water for everything. So the water was not pure. It had impurities in it. Although the stomachs of those who had lived there had gotten used to it and could drink it and be just fine, we couldn't. It affected us in bad ways. Several of us from the mission team got sick that summer, and part of it was because of the way we used the water. We didn't listen to the instructions. We uh, made some mistakes and used wrong water, some impure water. But one interesting thing about it is the impurities weren't really all that visible. It just looked like a cup of water. No big deal. Sometimes you couldn't tell the difference between pure water and impure water. Sometimes they put put the impure water in bottles, and we didn't know the difference. But once it got inside you, you knew the difference. You knew that it was impure. I wonder what we as a church look and you could say taste like to outsiders. I wonder once they have a feel for our fellowship, do they get sick because they find impurities in us as a church? It's been said that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world is Christians who acknowledge. Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. I don't know if that's the greatest single cause, but I do know that our purity as a church affects how others see God. Our purity affects how others see God. This is a a part of the reason why God wills that his church be pure, so that others will see our good works, will see our unity, will see our love for one another, and glorify him. I know there will always be sin dwelling in me, sin dwelling in us as a church. We're not perfect people. Far from it, we are forgiven people. But the Lord desires that we would be pure, that we would have an ever-increasing purity by which God would receive glory. For us as a church to be pure means, one, that we would have pure doctrines that they would be consistent with the Bible, with the Word of God, that our beliefs would be according to Scripture. It means also that our practice is pure, that we do what God has told us to do as a church, primarily preaching and administering the ordinances. But finally, it also means that our morality is pure, that our members are pure. This last reason is one of the reasons church membership is so important. I don't know if you've realized that or not, but there aren't 300 people here today. But we do have over 300 members on roll. They're more like 100. And what that means is that we're missing about 150 to 200 of our members. That's a problem. I think 
that causes us to have some impurities in our church. There's something missing there. There's something broken. You may say that's not a problem. Who cares if somebody's on the roll but doesn't come to church? But I do think that's a big problem. And I think it's a problem because of what it might cause the world to say. You can be a Christian and have absolutely nothing to do with the church. It says the people of God, hearing God's Word, coming together with other believers, these are all optional and unimportant aspects of the Christian life. But the truth is actually quite the opposite. This of all places, and now of all times, is when we are separate from the world and come together as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is when we practice for heaven. We are worshiping. We are communing with God through the Word and through the ordinances. That's just a small part, I think, of impurities in our church, but there's more that causes a church to be impure. And it's this, when a brother or sister continues in known sin and no one in the church confronts them on it. That causes us to be an impure church. Now, I know this is going to sound unloving and judgmental, but this is the truth of God's Word concerning His church. When a brother or sister is found to be in some sin, it's our duty as individual Christians and as a church to try and bring them back from that sin. To try and restore them to right fellowship with God and right fellowship with the church. We have the example in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Spend some time looking at that. Paul confronts the church for not confronting a church member who is committing a known sin. This man was having improper relations with his stepmother, and nobody in the church said anything about it. They just let it go. They just ignored it. It would be too, too uh, uncomfortable to address something like that. In verse 2 of chapter 5, Paul says that they should have mourned. So that's a, a genuine feeling of sorrow over this man's sin. They should have mourned and put this man out of their fellowship. And listen to what Paul says in verses 9 through 13. I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, that means a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside, but purge the wicked person from among you. All too often we focus on not associating with unbelievers who are immoral. And we don't have a problem associating with Christians who are living in open sin. Paul says this isn't right. And if you think Paul's being a little harsh, because that does sound harsh, doesn't it? Then we also have to reckon with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. There Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others with you 
so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would an unbeliever or a tax collector. See, the goal of this isn't to kick people out of the church. The goal is to bring people back into a right relationship with Christ, to hold one another accountable, to help one another on this journey of Christianity. The goal is restoration and repentance. The goal is that God's church would be pure, without spot or blemish. But in the end, it's important for us to realize we will never accomplish these things perfectly. We will not, in the first place, fulfill our purpose perfectly. We will not glorify God perfectly. We'll get off course in our mission, maybe even temporarily forgetting it, forgetting what we're supposed to be doing. Each one of us will struggle with impurities in our own heart. We'll struggle in our church with impurities. The truth of the Scripture reminds us that God will accomplish these things in us. God will accomplish these things. You see, there's one part of the will of God for His church we can't leave out, and it's the sovereign will of God. That, remember, refers to what will happen, what God will make sure happens. And we know from Matthew 16, 15 to 18, that God's church will not fail. Jesus said to Peter, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You hear the sovereign will of God there for His church? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is God's sovereign will that God's church would thrive and grow and succeed. We may sometimes wonder if we're making progress. We may wonder if the church worldwide is gaining ground or losing ground. It's a sure thing. Christ will build His church. No doubt about it. So as we go about our mission, we can tell others about Christ. We can preach Christ and talk to others about Jesus with confidence because we know God is working to build His church through His Word. Is that how you share the Gospel? With confidence that someone is going to hear it and believe? Or is there just this overwhelming timidity about sharing Jesus? Because you fear rejection. Because you fear nobody's going to receive it. Friends, we can be confident God is building His church. He will build His church. And as we strive for purity in our lives in His church, we can have confidence that God is going to make His church pure one day. The Scripture says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word. And He will present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. By His Spirit and through His Word, Christ is making His people pure. Christ is making His church pure. We can be sure of it. He lived for His church. He died for His church. And He is building His church even now. How do you fight against sin? 
with confidence, knowing that by the power of the Spirit through His Word, you can defeat it? That you can overcome sin? That your fight can be a winning battle with sin? We can fight sin confidently because Christ is in us, growing us into His likeness and making us pure. It may be that you're here and you're not a part of His church yet. If not, I would ask you to recognize your own sin. Recognize you have offended God and that you deserve punishment. But He offers you peace through Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for sinners so that you could be reconciled to God. So that you could be forgiven of your sin, so you could be acceptable to God. So recognize your sin and turn away from it. Repent of your sins and trust Jesus to save you. And He will make you a part of His church. He will save you. He will grow you. He will begin to make you pure for the day when Christ comes. I know many of you are Christians here as well. Let us consider what is at the top of our priority list. Things that are temporary and fleeting or things that are eternal. The glory of God. Do we even care about the glory of God anymore? Do we care about becoming godly? Perhaps we need to spend some time in repentance and examining our own hearts. So let's take a time, a moment to do that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would do your work in us. We know that one of the ways you are making us pure is by your word. As we measure our lives against your word and see how far short we fall. Father, help us take note of those areas. Those areas of sin and impurity. That we would seek repentance and restoration with you. Father, I pray for the one who is here not a Christian. I pray that you would so break their hearts over their sins that they would have no other choice but to cry out to you for mercy and forgiveness. Father, help us to walk in your ways that we would glorify you, fulfill your mission for us, and be pure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.